Welcome back to our series in the book of Acts. Do me a favor. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 as we are proclaiming the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 9. Turn in your Bible apps. If you're thinking, man, I'd like some notes. Well, we got notes if you got a Bible app. In the YouVersion Bible app, you go to the, the tab that says events. You click on that, you'll see New Heights Church, and you, you can look at my notes there. Uh, let me start with a story from my, my childhood. This actually brings back sweet, not every story for me is a sweet memory, but this is one. Um, thank you, Josh. This is, you can't see it. It's kind of blurry. It's the best I could do. It's actually a relatively new picture. Maryland Avenue Elementary School in La Mesa, California. It's a suburb of San Diego. Uh, I went to Maryland Avenue from first through fifth grade. It's crazy what you remember or don't remember. And one of the things I, I remember clearly is I was, and I know this is a shock to some of you, I was on the chess team. I know, you're giggling. I get it. I don't feel like a chess kind of guy, but I was. And uh, I learned it relatively late compared to others, but I, I'm competitive and I was playing like crazy. And, uh, but I get frustrated. Any, by the way, any chess players in here? Any Bobby Fishers? Look at this, raise your hand high. This scares me. Anyone play chess in here? Do they have a video game for chess? Okay. So I'm, I'm playing chess and I'm digging it and I'm pretty good, but not great. So I'm getting beat by classmates. I'm getting beat by other schools. We competed. And I remember one particular time I was so frustrated. I said to our chess sponsor, it wasn't my teacher, but a teacher at the school. I'm like, I, I'm trapped. There's nothing I can do. I'm just so tired of this. I get in these positions. I can't get out. And I'll never forget what, what, he, what he said to me. He said, Lee, just remember, in chess, you always have one more move. You always have one more move. And, and as I was thinking about this, I thought, here we are in the book of Acts, and it feels pretty hopeless, doesn't it? I mean, the disciples are now being imprisoned. Stephen, the, the, the super servant, who happens to be a really good teacher, Spirit-filled servant and teacher, he's martyred, he's put to death. As Jim mentioned last week, the church is scattered, right? This thing called the way is on the way out. I can just imagine everyone's going, oh, here we go again, right? Just one more would-be Messiah, Jesus, and a band of followers, and kill the head and the body dies, and it looks like the body is dying. And God says in the 11th hour, let me do something. Let me do something. He says, I still have one more move. And he does what even, even, I mean, believing and believing scholars are, um, are just amazed at what he does. He goes after the chief antagonist of the church, this guy by the name of Saul, Pharisee's Pharisee. Not only does he hate Christians, he's imprisoning them and, and signing off on their death. And God says, in the 11th hour, I still have one more move, but it gets better. You say, why does it get better? Because regardless of what my chess teacher said in fourth grade at Maryland Avenue Elementary School in La Mesa, California, regardless of what he said, eventually in chess, what happens? You don't have one more move, right? Eventually it's checkmate. But with God, there is no checkmate. The God of miracles says, no, you always have one more move. This morning, I'm excited, I love this story. I love this, this scripture. We're going to look at the life, of, the life of Saul, but particularly the conversion of Saul. And let me just give you kind of, we'll go macro here, a big picture. We're going to go old Saul. We're going to go new Saul, chosen Saul, changed Saul, and then encouraged Saul. Okay, let's start with um, 
Let's start with uh, old Saul. But before we do, I need to say this. I know what some of you are thinking. Um, wasn't his name changed to Paul when he was converted? Like, Lee, I'm pretty sure, you know, Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, you know, sea change here. This is significant. And wasn't, I mean, isn't his name, that's part of the deal, right? Saul was bad. Paul was good. Um, no, that's not true. You say, well, wait a second, what's going on? So in, in a Jewish setting, his name, Saul, he would wear the name Saul in a Jewish environment. It was Jewish. And when he goes to the Gentiles, his name was what? Paul, which is a Greek. Which is, so he's both. It's interchangeable. I know, I'm raining on your parade. Sorry about that. I've heard literally messages on, he went from Saul to Paul. Paul means small. It does in the original. He was once large as a Pharisee. Now he preaches great, just not true. So this morning, he's going to be Saul. He's going to be Saul. Uh, on and off, we'll see that throughout the rest of the book of Acts. So the old Saul, Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. Meanwhile, you see, what's the meanwhile there for? Well, we kind of take a parenthetical break. Back in 7, Stephen is martyred. And then in eight, there's some crazy God stories, supernatural God stories that Jim unpacked last week, which is really cool. And so we almost take this break, and then he picks up the text. Dr. Luke picks up the text again here in verse one. Meanwhile, Saul was still, because remember at the end of seven, he was breathing out murderous threats. Well, now we're back here in nine. He's doing the same thing against the Lord's disciples. He goes to the high priest and asked him for letters in the, to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the Way, capital W, this is what they called it before we called it Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Well, last week, um, as I mentioned, Jim mentioned in Acts chapter 8 that Saul was responsible for persecuting um, f followers of Jesus and scattering the church. It's possible that he was among the men who debated with Stephen. We know he was there when he was killed, right? He was literally right there signing off for his his death, uh, he, it, he seemed to be fueled by this intense fury. Later on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26, Paul gives us more of his mindset during this time. We need to read this because we're laying a foundation for who this guy is, right? Acts 26 verse 9, um, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests. I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, so it's not just Stephen, it's plural, it's more than that. I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I love this. I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. In a word, um, Saul was relentless. Now, once again, this guy thinks it's a cult. This guy thinks that literally that these, these people of the way uh, are cultists trying to bring down the religion of the one true God, the, uh, the teachings of the one true God. So when we pick up the story in chapter 9, Saul was concerned that that the religion called the way was spreading. So now it's really spreading. So as Jim mentioned last week, it is in Jerusalem, but as he mentioned last week, it goes to Samaria. This sounds like the Great Commission, doesn't it? But still, they're afraid. They're afraid because of guys like Saul and others, and so they're kind of keeping it tight. But the, the more they get persecuted, right, the more they realize, we gotta go someplace else. And so now this thing called the way begins to go to Damascus, begins to go to Syria, 120 miles north. 
And Syria, uh, Damascus was uh, what's one of the cities we call the Decapolis. It was one of the 10. Trade route, strategic, big city. And, and Saul is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If it goes there, man, it could really, really take off. So he's on his way to do some more persecuting. I mean, he is ready to stop this thing. So we go, we go from old Saul, though, to new Saul. Acts chapter 9 and verse 3. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, uh, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you, why do you persecute me? And Saul says to me, this is amazing. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? I am Jesus. You're like, <laughs> you can imagine. No, no, no. You couldn't be Jesus. You're dead. Like, you're going to mess with my whole worldview right now. Like, you might be Yahweh. You might be the great I am. You, you couldn't be Jesus. You're dead. Surprise. <laughs> Here I am. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. It reminds us of Stephen when he saw Jesus standing, enter, literally at the entrance of heaven, so to speak, welcoming this first martyr. No one else saw him. They're like, who, who are you talking to? Right now they're like, who, what voice are you hearing? Supernatural God doing supernatural things. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. This once great Pharisee of Pharisees is now just a feeble dude who can't even, can't even see. For three days he was blind. He didn't eat or drink anything. So we would say in an instant, Saul was given an entirely new perspective on this Jesus he thought was dead. On this Jesus he thought was a fraud. In a flash, Saul was given a new authority in his life, a brand new direction and, and a new, new purpose. Needless to say, this rocked his world and, it, and it's no, no different for us. I didn't put this on the screen, but you might write this down. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, write these words down. I want you to be encouraged by this. Your testimony is powerful. Hey, and it doesn't have to be Saul's testimony. You're like, I, I didn't see a crazy vision, hear a voice from God. Maybe like my wife's testimony, the age of four, her mom led her to Jesus at the foot of her bed. My wife loves her testimony, shares her testimony, shares how she grew up, shares the, the spiritual heritage of her home. Don't be ashamed of that. Rejoice in that. Hallelujah. Your testimony is powerful. Why? Because it's your testimony. It's your God story. I'll never forget the first date with Ruth for so many reasons, but this is one of them. We went to dinner and uh, you say, what's the big deal? I had no money. I don't know where I got the money. I took her to a fancy place. We had French onion soup, which back then, I don't know why, it felt super fancy. I think back in the 80s, all food felt fancy. Like I, there, was just, there, there was just nothing but American food. There are other food. Uh, but I guess French onion soup's French. But so it was, it, was, it was fantastic. And I was just looking into her eyes. I was amazed. And afterwards, we were right next to an all-women's college. Was it Randy Mack? Randy Mack, which is now not an all-women's college. because We went back there recently. And we said, let's go for a walk. And we're out walking. It was beautiful. I'm starstruck by this amazing, amazing godly lady. And she looks at me and she says, hey, what's your story? And at first I thought, uh-oh, she's got the goods on me. What do you mean? What's my story? And then I said, well, what do you mean? I've only been a believer a couple of years. And she said, what's your God story? She said these words. 
What's the best part about you? It's Jesus in you. Tell me your story. And it's crazy because I thought, I'm a little embarrassed, not of my salvation, but of my background. Like, you can even imagine Saul. Hey, what's your story? Oh, I was killing Christians. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I was a little embarrassed. And I told her, and I waited. It was like that pause. And she went, that's amazing. What an awesome story. Why? Because it was my story. It was God working in me. Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, seemed to understand this concept real well. Why? Because not once, not twice, but three different times, he gives us Paul's testimony. We're going in and out of it right now this morning. Not just here in 9, but in 26 and other places in the book of Acts. Why? Because, especially for Saul, right, the, the chief agitator of the church, but he knew that a testimony was powerful. It reminds me of the blind man in John chapter 9. Remember? Jesus heals him. And the Pharisees are like, hey, 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 wait a second. What's going on? This man is a, he's from Beelzebub. He's from Satan. The blind man's like, hey, all I know is once I was blind, but now I see. In your face. No, he didn't say that, but that's what I would have said. <laughs> Part of your story is, in a, a sweet way, is in your face. In a sweet way. I once was lost, but now I'm found. That, that's all I can tell you. That's all I can tell you. I don't want us to miss this either. Verse five. If we, are we looking at verse five right now? I know I don't have them numbered, but if we can go back up to verse five, if we're near there, that would be, that would be good. I want us to look at this because Jesus equates persecuting his church with persecuting himself. I find that interesting. If we've, if we've ever wondered how Jesus thinks about us, about his church, we need to let this passage sink in. Why? And I want you to see this quote. Josh, if we can get this quote. It's really good. This, Jesus is so intimately connected with the church that to mess with us is to mess with him. We are his body. He is the head. And this is more than a metaphor. He doesn't say we're like his body. He said that, that'd be a metaphor. He says we are. We are the body of Christ. So let me also say this. Shame on us. Shame on me. When we attack another believer, we're attacking Jesus. When we speak against a member of the body of Christ, we're speaking against him. Jesus told us that when we show love to each other, we're showing love to him. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17 in the upper room, days before going to the cross. Remember what he prayed? He said, Father, you and I are one. We're unified. My prayer is that those, those who claim to be followers of, of me they too will be unified. And because they're, they are unified, people will be attracted. They'll go, wow, look at that unity. I want some of that. Let me also lovingly say this. Jesus calls the church his bride. You say, well, well yeah, I know. What's your point? Here's my point. You can't love Jesus and hate his bride. I know it's become, um, oh, God forbid, cool but it's become common to say stuff like that. As a follower of Jesus, you can't love Jesus and hate his bride any more than you could say to me, hey, Lee, you're great. I'd love for you to come over to dinner. And I say, what about Ruth? No, we hate Ruth. She's messy. She's complicated. She's a hypocrite. Well, well but no, we're, we're, we're together. I want you. I don't want her. 
I say that because I hear some people say, not you all, because you're here, but even in our community, they say they love Jesus, but they're only marginally involved in a local church. I'm telling you, there's no question at all based on the Bible that we should be very involved in a local church. We need to join and get involved in ministry and be a contributing member. Uh, but you may have heard some believers say, say this. This is kind of the, again, the hot, hip, cool thing to say. Well, Lee, you know, the church embarrasses me. Hey, you know what? Newsflash. The church embarrasses Jesus too. It does. You say, whoa, unpack that. I would say this, if he identifies with embarrassing, broken things like you and me in the church, why would we think we're too good to identify with the church? It's crazy talk. Oh man, I met someone in church and they're sinful. Yeah, they're hypocrites, okay. You really think Jesus is going, man, when I saved you, I expect you to be perfect. First John 1 John 1.8 says that if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you, but confess your sin. He anticipates that we'll sin. Is it an excuse to sin? No, God forbid. Paul says don't, don't keep sinning, but you will. Confess it, move on, own up to it. Hey, the church has made some mistakes in the past 2,000 years. We need to confess it. We need to lament. We need to repent. But good grief, if you're waiting for a perfect church, you better die so you can go to heaven because there's no such thing. No such thing. Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. I'm not far behind. Let me switch gears just for a second. Acts 26, uh, Saul shares, here we go, his testimony with King Agrippa. He says, we all fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I don't know why, but every time I hear that word goads, it feels strange to me. You say, well, what's a goad? A goad is just a, a pointed stick. When a stubborn ox wouldn't, or, or cow wouldn't move, a pointed goad like, like a pointed stick would be applied ever so strategically to the animal to move and be put in such a place where um, if it tried to kick against it, it would be more painful. So it was better just to keep moving and not kick against it, right? Um, I don't know for sure um, why Saul was kicking against the goats. I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what's going on. Some scholars say that the overwhelming testimony of Stephen, his, his speech, his countenance, his spirit, that that was probably really convicting Saul and he still kept kicking against that. The growth of the church was blowing Saul away and he knew better, like he knew something was wrong in his, you know, in his theology, and, but he still kept kicking against it. Maybe it was other believers he was persecuting and again, their attitude, their countenance. Um, again, he was kicking against that. I don't know, but in any case, he was fighting against God and that's, let me just lovingly say this, and I don't know because it's up to God, not up to me. That's a dangerous position to be in. It's just dangerous. There is um, an old uh, Jim Croce. Who knows Jim Croce? Who knows him personally? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That'd be awesome. He died in a plane crash. I loved his music. My mom and dad always played his music. And he's got a song called You Don't Mess Around With Jim. I know what you're thinking. It's the New Heights um, staff song, but it's not. It could be, but it's not. And the chorus goes, goes like this. Um, I know you want to sing it. 
um, let's not. And they say, you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, you don't pull the mask off the old lone ranger, and you don't mess around with Jim. Man, I miss lyrics like that. But uh, you get the point. In Saul's case, when the God of the universe is trying to get your attention, you don't, you don't mess around with Jesus. You embrace him. Okay, uh, old Saul, new Saul. Let's take a look at um, the chosen Saul. Acts chapter 9, verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Get, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, um, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. First service, I think I made a mistake. First service, um, I talked about obedience and that he, and I'm going to read this, but he had to be told twice, so it was delayed obedience. I don't think it was delayed obedience. I think that Ananias is just being shrewd. Um, Nathan Allen, our global pastor, lovingly rebuked me. If you didn't know this, for what it matters, in between services of our talks, um, we critique and we try to adjust and make changes as the Holy Spirit leads. And so I do. I think I made a mistake there. And uh, I think that he was just trying to be shrewd. So he basically says, God, um, this dude is doing some bad things. Are, are you sure? Are you sure? Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Um, not a whole lot of prosperity theology there. Verse 17, um, then Ananias went, he obeyed. Shrewd, but he obeyed to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road um, as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up. Again, this is our theme in the book of Acts, really throughout the New Testament. He got baptized. He didn't debate. He didn't argue. He didn't say, I've been baptized before. He just, he realized, I need to get baptized. I need to let people know that I'm now a follower of Jesus. The old me is dead. The new me is alive in Christ. And after taking some food, remember three days, no food, he regained his strength. Saul uh, spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. I want to take a look at verse 15 one more time. I think this is important. Let's unpack this together. He says, um, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and for the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Whether we like, like it or not, we have to admit, if we're going to be true to the text, context is king, we want to be true to the text, that Saul was not seeking salvation. Quite the opposite. He was seeking to kill people who were talking about salvation. Well, you know, know nothing. He, he was seeking to destroy those who proclaimed a salvation, um, a salvation by grace apart from the law. Saul wasn't seeking salvation. God was seeking Saul. God is the initiator in this drama. So the question arises, okay, you ready for this? Are we chosen or is it a choice? You're like, dude, you're going to unpack this right now. Yep, in two minutes, I'm going to unpack this. My, my answer to that is Yes. Yes. Now, 
I would add this, in no way do I, I fully understand it. Let me be real transparent with you. I've gone through different stages in my life. Um, as we all do as believers. And so when I first became a follower of Jesus, probably for about the first 14 or 15 years, I was an all, I was an all um, choice guy. I ran after God. You have to run after God. It's up to you. Once you get there, you got to cry out. It's all choice. But then I began to, to read some more books and read the scriptures and I became an all chosen guy. Um, the danger with all chosen guys, it leads to us four no more, right? I became fatalistic and, you know, it's not going to get done unless God does it and nothing, I have nothing to do with it. And then thank you, Jesus, some, some men and women in my life began to encourage me to look at some different views. And I, I came to the position I'm at right now. And I want, I want Josh to put that up there right now. Um, chosen versus choice. I, I embrace the mystery. I try to stay out of ditches. Now, let me anticipate what you're already thinking, okay? Um, Romans chapter 9, you're saying, wait a second, Lee. Hold on. Um, Romans chapter 9 says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? No, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. Uh, verse 16, this is the clincherly end, end of argument. It does not therefore depend on a man or woman's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. But, but wait a second. Then he goes on to say this in Romans 10. Um, and this will make you crazy, right? Romans 10, um, for it is with your heart that you believe um, verse 10, and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved, as the scripture says, anyone? Wait, anyone? You mean the elect. Doesn't say the elect. I know, but I want to put that in there to justify my, my view. I know you do. I did too. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Thank you, God. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he takes it a step further. He says, how then shall, shall they call on the one whom they've not believed in? That's a good question. And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? Okay. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Huh? Wait a second, and how can they preach unless they are sent? We just had the, the phylas up here. We just laid hands. We pray. We're sending them off. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet um, of those who bring good news. And some of you are thinking, it appears from Scripture, Lee, that there is an element of being chosen and an element of choice. Yes. Embrace the mystery. We say, what's my response? Be faithful. Hey, go deep on these issues. God's a big God. He can handle whatever opinion you have. Go deep, have an opinion. But, but the scriptures also talks about endless, endless arguments over doctrine that cause us to not do anything for the kingdom. <laughs> we love to sit and soak and then we don't do anything. My advice to you would be, as it is to myself, go deep, enjoy scriptures. God is a, is a big God, he can handle himself. But man, get about the business of bearing fruit that lasts. And that's a great segue, because this is Paul. This is Saul. Let me segue to our fourth point this morning, and that is we're going to see a change, Saul. So we got, we got old, we got new, we got chosen. Now we've got changed, Saul. Acts chapter 9 and verse 20. Um, I love these, these two words, right? Really one, but at once. At once. 
At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Saul became an immediate proclaimer of Jesus. Now the question is, did he have a fully formed theology? No, not yet. He learned like the rest of us have as the Holy Spirit gave him understanding. But the fact that he might not have known all that he eventually would know didn't stop him from giving a witness of what he did know. Let me say that again. I know it's deep. Um, But the fact that he might not have known all that he eventually would know didn't stop him from giving a witness of what he did know. When I first became a follower at 17, uh, anything that moved, I was telling Jesus. Land animals, fish, family. Seriously. Um, I I dare say some heresy may have leaked out of me. I I confess. Because if you wait to tell people about Jesus till you know everything about Jesus, you won't tell anyone about Jesus. I was a new creation in Christ. The old was gone. Um, The new had come. And I had to tell somebody. I was was different. I remember taking my brother, my sister, everyone I could, my cousins, and I didn't do it perfect. I insulted people. As I said, I said things maybe that weren't true. But I was just so excited that I, like like Paul, at once, I said, I got to tell people about Jesus. We've seen the old Saul, the new Saul, the chosen Saul, a changed Saul. And now, lastly, we'll finish with an encouraged Saul. Three years later, Saul went to Jerusalem to meet the leaders of the church, Acts 9 and verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and not believing that he really was a disciple. That's interesting. The phrase he tried to to join the disciples is in the present active tense in, in the Greek. In other words, Saul made frequent efforts to join, but every time he was turned down. He's like, I'm a new creation. Yeah, you killed people. I'm different, right? And I get it. You know, Ananias was shrewd, but eventually he took a risk. Obviously, a lot of these people, they were shrewd, but eventually they said, no thanks. But praise God for Barnabas. Praise God on so many levels for Barnabas. Verse 27, Barnabas enters the story, but Barnabas took him Saul and brought him to the apostles. He's like, I vouch for this guy. Barnabas was a made man, right? I vouch for this guy. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord. Now, what does he begin to tell them? His testimony. It's his testimony. How Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in in the name of Jesus. Now, we're introduced, really introduced, to Barnabas back in Acts 5. And he was, remember, he was a generous man. He sold all that he had and he gave it to the disciples, the apostles. Here we learn that he's a a gracious man. And, And please understand this. Those two things go together. He's a giver. He's a giver of his money and, and he gives his love. As you and I learn how to give, it should transform us. Here what Barnabas is doing is he's taking a, a tremendous risk. Why? We've got to get this down, beloved. Because love is risk. Love is risk. I get it. There's a fine line between being shrewd and cautious and, and recklessly a, abandon ourselves to, to Jesus' love. But I would rather have us go over here 
to abandonment for Jesus' love than go over here for risk management and do nothing for the kingdom of God. Risk management always seems right in the moment, but then you get to the end of your life and you're like, what did I do? What did I do? I played it safe? Here what Barnabas is doing is he's taking a tremendous risk because risk is, love is a risk. It just is. And if we don't take a risk, then we can't love anybody. And if we're, gonna, if we're, we're wanting to love somebody, we have to risk that they could betray us. They could fail us. They could harm us. Hey, have a child. Risk. Can I get an amen? You're like, you will love me forever. <laughs> and I will hold you and pet you and you'll never have a problem. No, man, you have a child, it's a risk. Worth the risk. Amen? Children are worth the risk. I got some poor guy back there going, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Oh, my, I, I... You know our story. Three children are with heaven and, and with Jesus, and really four. We've had a miscarriage too. We've got two boys, and man, I love them. I can't stop thinking. Worth the risk. Are they perfect? Their mom thinks so, but no, they're not. <laughs> but they sure are awesome. They're made in God's image. I can't stop thinking about them. That's the risk that Barnabas is taking with Saul. That's why nobody else wanted to take the risk. He murders Christians. Everyone else said, we're not, we're not taking the risk. Barnabas was also an encourager. His name literally meant son of encouragement. You might want to write this down. I want you to see this up here. It's really important. Um, encourage means to put courage into. Have you ever been around that person? You, it's like those inflatable things that people use to advertise car sales. You know, they're waving like this. I, I'll never do that again. I'm sorry. That was... My wife and son are, I just shame them, but eventually those things just start to kind of lose air, right? And we, and we know what encouragers do. They pump air and they come back up. You've been around that person. They're like, you can do it. You're great. I love you. God's using you. Hang in there. Well, you say, well, what's a discourager? Let me, let me give you a definition of discourager. One who siphons courage from another. Literally just comes up to the waving thing and pop, pops it. Nothing. I have a confession. I know I'm a pastor and a child of God. I struggle being around discouragers. I've told you this before. Um, let's do this between you and me. If you struggle with being a discourager and a negative Nelly, a Debbie Downer, Jim would like to meet with any one of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> where would Saul have been if it wasn't for the encouragement of Barnabas <laughs> wow you say well I don't think we know you're right we don't know would the leaders of the church have ever accepted him would he have made forget three missionary journeys would he have made one we don't know for sure what we do know is that Saul would go on to be the leader in the church, the chief missionary to the Gentiles. We know he wrote almost half the New Testament books, and we know that Barnabas, the encourager, was but used by God to get Saul started. Let me just ask us this morning. I have to. This is really important. Are we encouragers or discouragers? Let me, let me make it more personal. Who are we putting courage into? 
Who are we coming alongside and breathing life into and maybe, maybe just changing their whole direction for the good of the kingdom? Who do you have in mind? Who have you targeted? That comes in discipleship. That comes around, around the water cooler or the coffee pot at, at the office. That comes at a family reunion. You're like, oh man, family reunion. There's always, there's always a couple people who are like, oh, yeah, I want to hide from them. Do the opposite. Go encourage them. Now we need to ask this too, though. On the flip side, who are we siphoning courage from? Who are we devastating with our words or, or lack of words and quite possibly hurting their effectiveness for the kingdom of God? Words or the lack of words are unbelievably powerful. So let's do this. Let's, let's just right now, here's what I want you to do. I know what you're thinking. Oh no, we're going to break up into circles again. No, we're not going to do that. Not going to do that, even though I love that. We're not going to do that. That's for another day. Today, you just sit in your seat, and here's what I want you to do, okay? You ready? Some quick homework. Right now, say to yourself, pray this to God. God, I want to be a Barnabas. I'm going to stop making excuses like, I'm the guy that keeps it real. You really, you want to be the guy that keeps it real? You want someone to keep it real with you all the time? I do want that, really. You want that person just to dig, dig, push, negative. Dig. You don't want that. Yeah, there's, there's a time to lovingly rebuke someone with, with meekness and, and, and to be gentle. But Paul uses another word later on when he's writing to the church. And, you know, the church is, he's writing to Colossians and he says, it's good for us to overlook an offense. You get it? It's still an offense. Can you overlook it? Sadly, the devil does this to us, right? In our flesh, in the world system we live in. It tells us, push into the offense. Yeah. You did me wrong. That hurts. I'm a victim. You stink. Feels kind of good because I'm better than you because you hurt. Paul's like, overlook it. Overlook it. So right now, in your heart of hearts, just say, God, I want to be a Barnabas. I want to give courage to my spouse, to my kids, to my grandkids, to my mom, my dad, my coworkers, um, my, my siblings, my enemies, especially your enemies. All right, conclusion, Acts chapter nine. Acts chapter nine, verse 28. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem and speaking boldly in the name of the Lord, he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews. I always love these little, these little quick sentences, but they tried to kill him. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, wow, that's pretty heavy. When the brothers learned of this, um, it, was, they, it was obviously a pretty serious threat. They stole him away, so to speak, down to Caesarea, and then they sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, so it grew in numbers. Uh, living in uh, the adoration, the fear of the Lord. This is a typical summary statement from Dr. Luke, but I believe he, he makes it here because Saul has now become a, a significant contributor to the progress of the gospel and to the success of the church. And this persecutor of the church has become tremendously useful for the kingdom of God. So let me, let me just finish by saying this. When God changes us, he does so that he might make us useful for his kingdom. Now it looks different. We have different gifts. We're in different places, in different parts of the world, different families. 
But God always changes us for a purpose. And that stands out to me. He changed Saul for a purpose. But I don't want to camp there. Here's where I want to camp. This is really significant to me. Um, Saul's conversion also says something else to us. It says this, and I want you to see it. If God can change Saul, he can change anybody. He can change anybody. Saul's testimony was um, pretty unbelievable, but you know what? Every one of us that has been transformed by the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus has a testimony. Write this down. I have a Damascus Road testimony. And don't let the devil shame you. Well, yours isn't that special. <laughs> you became a Christian at four. Or yours is horrible. You came out of a lifestyle of debauchery. You, who are you? Your testimony is your testimony. Your Damascus Road experience is your Damascus Road experience. It's not one size fits all. The key is lean into what God has done in, in you and share it with others. Everyone who knows and loves Jesus has a Damascus Road experience. You matter to Jesus. Your life matters. His grace is deep and his forgiveness is real. And everybody like Saul has a conversion story worth telling. And remember this. Remember, God always has one more move. At the age of 17, I'd already... I still kind of wince and I shouldn't. I'm, I'm a little ashamed. At the age of 17, I'd already dropped out of public high school once. They said, you're such a mess. We have no idea what, what to do with you. Like we're sending you to psychiatrists, we're counselors. We're going to send you to military school. That'll fix you. I ran away. I was... Um, <laughs> To say the least, I was angry. I mean, so angry. So much anger. Depressed and suicidal. I was at the end of my rope. And then a buddy, um, the least likely I would have thought to invite me because he and I partied together and did inappropriate things together. But God uses all sorts of people. He invited me to church, uh, then to an old-fashioned revival. And for the first time in my life, Growing up with no religious background whatsoever, I experienced the love of Jesus. I walked an aisle, gave my life to him, and God said, Lee, you didn't know it at the time. Nobody believed it. But when it came to your life, I still had one more move. My mom was 41 years old, a self-proclaimed agnostic on her third husband and already been to rehab twice for alcohol addiction. Neither one took. I begged her to turn to Jesus. She refused. Finally, a woman in my church with a past like my mom's invited her over for lunch, told her how much Jesus loved her and could change her life. My mom gave her life to Jesus that afternoon and God said, Len, you didn't know it. You didn't know it at the time. Nobody believed it. But when it came to your life, I still had one more move. My older brother was a drug addict who spent three years in an Australian prison Mom and I begged him for 33 years to turn to Jesus. His mind was gone. His life in shatters. And then three men, 
three elders from the church I first served at out of seminary, told them that Jesus loved him, could break his shackles of addiction, walked with him, loved him, helped him, prayed for him, and finally at the age of 50, he gave his life to Jesus. And God said, Ty, you didn't know it at the time, nobody believed it, but when it came to your life, I still had one more move. Who is that person or persons that God has put in your life and you're thinking they desperately need Jesus, but they'll never change? It's too late for them. I love this quote by our very own Josh Graber. He's going to come up here in a minute. You'll see him at the keyboard. He hates that I'm saying this. But he gave, gave us this quote as we were working on this talk together as a staff. He said, the person who is farthest away from God can be redeemed. And this next part is what's really convicted me. Who are we pursuing that seems impossible to reach? Unlike chess, where eventually you run out of moves, the God of the universe never runs out of moves. And just about the time you think it's the 11th hour, it's all over, God shows up and does the miraculous. Who are you praying for? Who are you pursuing? Because even though you may have stopped, God hasn't. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Like the worship team to come up right now. And if you're on the prayer team, come on up. You're going to see men and women to my right and left and around this room. And they're just sinners like you, saved by God's grace, who just want to pray with you. And maybe you're here this morning and you, man, you're where I was when I went to that, that youth group and that old fashioned revival, or my mom before she met with that woman or my brother, before he met with those three elders. And you're like, man, I hope God has one more move because I, I desperately need him. I want to invite you this morning. You can come up here and share, share your story. Share your story with somebody and just say, I'm a mess. I need Jesus. Let me encourage you what not to do. Don't come up and, and, and try and get connected to a church building or a denomination or some sort of works. None of that. None of that will ever work. It's about Jesus. It's about his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. You can't earn your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. Jesus wants to meet you where you are at and invite you into what he calls, not my words, his, the abundant life. Maybe you're here this morning, I bet there's a lot of you, you're like, man, I'm, I just, I don't see it. I know God has one more move and I don't see it in my husband or my kid or my, my, my coworker or my family member. I'm gonna encourage, don't give up. Pray what David prayed. I know it's a different scenario, but God's been hitting me with this. Say, God, renew unto me the joy of my salvation that I might realize what a supernatural God you are. Don't give up. Let me pray. Father, we're reminded um, 
that often, forgive me, our love is cautious, but your love is reckless. In the right sense of that word, it's reckless. It goes where no one goes, and it seeks no one, those who no one will seek, and it finds those who are lost. It finds the addicted, and it finds the religious who are just as lost as the addicted. We pray this morning, God, that you will seek and save those who are lost. Father, we pray that you will encourage those who are discouraged about family members and friends who are far from you. Encourage them not to give up. You've got one more move, always. Our dying breath, whether it's a thief on a cross or a person in a, in a, in a hospital bed dying of cancer, you've got one more move. Thank you for that. God, I pray today that it would be the salvation. Today would be the day of salvation for some in this room. And I pray that today would be the day of encouragement for those who've given up hope. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.